Good morning. We've been talking for some while and focusing on Thanksgiving, rightfully so, and I needed that. I usually get started about uh, being grateful in November, and then it takes me till Christmas <laughs> to, to recognize so many of the things and, and flavor, uh, enjoy their flavor again. So that's where I am. Um, Dean called and said, you've got one verse to read tomorrow. I thought, that's got to be an important verse. And I don't invite you to think otherwise. <laughs> so I said, what's the difficulty? But I've discovered it, it starts on one column and goes to another. So I'll have to handle that. <laughs> Will you stand for the scripture, please? We find ourselves in Exodus 20. If you've looked for the commandments before, we're back again. And this is one of them. And I think it has to do with Thanksgiving in this sense. There's an instruction here in this verse to be content with what you have. Not just content, but grateful with what your blessings are. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thank you. The word of the Lord. Wow, Gail. Uh, that was a great commentary. You just gave the Reader's Digest condensed version of my message today. So. Thank you. You know, uh, I, I love the way God works to prepare our hearts for what he wants to say to us on a given day. Sometimes, um, you know, I, I've, I've had people come from Sunday school class and say, you know, and I'll preach the message and say, Pastor, we talked about that in Sunday school today, too. We didn't know you were... It's just, uh, God is great. Well, Julie mentioned earlier, uh, we're... Uh, I don't use this terminology generally. I'm not sure where she got it. We're in the shoulder season. Between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. And um, last week uh, I, I talked specifically about thanks, gratitude, um, and how, how necessary that is in our lives. Um, and so I'm, uh, you're going to hear some of the same themes today. Because uh, Gail made reference to that. But as we enter into this Christmas season, just having given thanks for our many blessings, we are encouraged culturally now to want. Right? Because that's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. No, it's not. But that's kind of the, what our culture has impressed on us. Um, I mean, they call Black Friday Black Friday because, you know, stores stay in the black because they sell so much stuff at that time of the year. And it's all about do your Christmas shopping on this weekend and go buy all this stuff and junk and things and, and you know, uh, put something else in your garage that you never use. Right? 
Isn't it amazing how many people buy a two-car garage and park their cars in the driveway or on the street because their garage is full of junk that they never use? So I've entitled my message this morning, Being Satisfied with What You've Got. Someone has said, To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. So I want to ask three questions for you to cogitate on this morning as we begin. What do you want? Maybe you have a mental list of one or more things that pops up on the screen of your mind as soon as you touch the mouse. How much do you want? And what are you willing to do to get it? Are you willing to cut corners, save, work more hours, or put it on plastic? And why do you want it? You know, the advertising folks have done a pretty effective job of creating uh, this want list in our hearts and minds. And we may not all want the same thing or things, but I think you could safely say that we're all susceptible to wanting something. I'm guilty of that. Ask my wife. You know, Christmas time, like there's always a list this long. As some of you know that Julie and I enjoy riding a three-wheeled machine called a spider. Uh, mine's a 2013 ST, Sport Touring. Um, it's got almost a 1,000 cc's. It's a V-twin, 1,000 cc's, about 100 horsepower. My brother-in-law has the updated... 2015 F3. It looks a little different. The seating position is different. It's got a three-cylinder engine. 15 more horses than mine. More torque. You know what I mean? We've been led to believe that we cannot be content or happy unless... We have something else that is newer, bigger, faster, shinier, more efficient than what we already have. It is the job of advertisers to create in us a desire or perceived need so that we will buy what they are selling. You have to have this. The message is that we deserve these things and that they will make us happy. It's, it's as if they make up for things in our lives that we are not. For example, if you're not adventuresome, go out and buy the all-wheel drive vehicle that they're advertising on TV. If you lack sex appeal, buy the right clothes or the right toothpaste or the right deodorant. And if you're not as athletic as you'd like to be, well, there's a pair of shoes or warm-ups out there that will do the trick. The problem is this pursuit of more and more only makes us more unhappy, more discontent. We find evidence of this in surveys taken of married couples which revealed that the primary cause of unhappiness in marriage and relationships 
tends not to be about sex or children or in-laws, but about possessions and attitudes toward money. And it's a problem for Christian and non-Christian alike. So the tenth commandment that Gail read for us this morning says that we are not to covet. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the dictionary definition, to covet means, number one, to wish for enviously. I envy Gary because of his nice bass guitar or something like that. Now, I honestly have no desire to own a bass guitar, but you know what I'm saying. Maybe I do envy his big four-wheel drive pickup, though. (laughs) To wish for enviously. Or number two, to feel an inordinate desire for what belongs to another. Inordinate, in this case, means unregulated or exceeding reasonable limits. And by the way, both of those definitions can apply to us. We can, have, we can wish for things enviously. We can have an inordinate desire for what belongs to someone else. Like my brother, brother-in-law's F3. So, now if you look at the Hebrew word for covet in the, the, the Tenth Commandment, it's, it's the word shamad. And it means an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire. It is shamad that cost Achan his life after the destruction of Jericho. Let me refresh you a little bit about that story. You remember the, the city of Jericho has been taken... And all in it, by God's instruction, were to be devoted to God. Everything in it. They weren't supposed to keep anything, no plunder for themselves. The next city that they were to conquer was a, a city, the city of Ai. And it was smaller and it was not as well fortified as Jericho. But in trying to take that city, the Israelites suffered defeat. And they're wondering, God, what's going on here? Well, Joshua fell on his face before God who revealed to him that the people had disobeyed and taken some of the devoted things from Jericho for themselves. Through through a God-guided process of elimination, Achan was found out. That's kind of an appropriate name, isn't it? Achan. Oh, my Achan problem. Oh, my Achan. Something like that. So, it's a God-guided process. Achan has found out. His confession was this. When I saw the plunder, I coveted Shamad them and took them. And the sin of covetousness cost Achan, his family, and 36 men who died in the battle of Ai their lives. By the way, sin... Even the sin of covetousness is never self-contained. Sin always affects others, even covetousness. It certainly did in this case. And covetousness is not limited to money or items. You know, you could covet somebody's influence, their fame, their power, even their appearance. You know, we watch these uh, Hallmark Christmas specials. And all the guys on there. there. Man, I wish I looked like that. 
We are not to covet anything possessed by our neighbor. And, and if we look again at our text, we're not to cover our na- covet our neighbor's house, it says. And now, now that seems pretty obvious. Except that the Hebrew meaning includes everything in the house. So we're not to covet our neighbor's big screen TV or his hardwood flooring or the furniture or the marble countertops or the oak cabinets or the car in the garage. And we're not to covet our neighbor's spouse or son or daughter or any other relationship. And we're not to covet our neighbor's manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey. And at the time this was written, that, was basic, that basically covered anything and everything that might belong to your neighbor. And we know that our neighbor includes more than the folks that live next door to us or even down the block. Right? So, just kind of to help us understand what we're talking about here, the Tenth Commandment is not a command against lawful desire. You know, when God saves you, you do not become a robot. And by the way, there are some things that we should long for, desire in our lives. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, didn't we? So, we talked about the fact that so many of our prayers revolve around the temporal and the physical and what we should really be desiring when we come to God is the spiritual. So there are some things we should long and desire for. So when God saves you, you don't become a robot. He doesn't make us a person without passion or ambition. Wants and desires aren't necessarily wrong. It's when your desire drives you, when it is out of focus or when it becomes your focus or when it's set upon the wrong things, or motivated by the wrong things, that it becomes a problem, which is covetousness. And why is this command the last one? Ever think about that? Well, it forbids not an external act, but an attitude, a condition of the heart. A condition that has potential for being the root of nearly every sin against a neighbor. The four preceding commandments, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, all can result from covetousness. And until we've dealt with the heart and the sin that this command speaks to, those other commands are rules that we may find difficult or even impossible to keep. So, what's the problem with covetousness? Number one, it is deceitful. It's deceitful. Very few people realize that they are covetous because we become so used to it, and it's not really considered a problem by folks in our culture. You're supposed to want all this stuff, right? I mean, go for all the gusto you can get. He who dies with the most toys wins. That kind of an attitude that we see sometimes plastered on bumper stickers. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, I have seen thousands of people converted to be doing the right thing. But covetousness is deceitful. It can be disguised, hidden, a secret matter of the heart. 
And when Paul was confronted with the condition of his heart, he realized that although he had never committed the acts forbidden by the law, he couldn't say that he had never desired to. Isn't it amazing? Covetousness is something that none of us thinks we have. We think the other person has it. But until we get to the root of the problem, our own problem, we'll never get to a solution. And another problem, another danger is that it's destructive. Covetousness is destructive. First Timothy chapter 6. Verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Paul writing to Timothy says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Boy, it sure would be nice to win the lottery or the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, wouldn't it? By the way, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, there's there's some things that have been written about people who um, end up coming into tons of money through something like the lottery or publisher's clearinghouse. It, It ruins their lives. It ruins their lives. So, uh, that whole thinking of, boy, if I could... I mean, I know we say that jokingly sometimes, but there are people out there that... I remember standing in... Last time I went to get some gift cards that we could give out from the church, I had to stand in line at King Super behind all the people who were buying their little scratch-off or lottery things that they were filling out, all the numbers. There's a whole line of people in front of me doing that. And it, this whole idea of, of, man, boy, I want to win the lottery, or, or if I want, you know, it used to be Ed McMahon, I don't know who comes to the door now with Publishers Clearinghouse, but it's reflective of a determination or desire to be rich, a longing for money and the things it will buy. Hey, and here's a great thing about it, I didn't even have to work for it. Always desiring more. And folks, that's greed, and the root of greed is covetousness. And Paul says it leads to ruin, destruction, and grief. And Paul issues another dire warning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Ephesians 5, verse 5, where he says this, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, no impure, or no greedy person, such a person is an idolater, He's talking about the greedy person now. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Let me read it to you in the NASB, New American Standard Version. For this you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, the covetous man is breaking two commandments. He's breaking breaking commandment two against idolatry 
and he's breaking commandment 10 against covetousness. And the destructiveness of idolatry in Israel's history can be just as destructive for us. Our idols might be different, but they're idols nonetheless. Jesus said in Luke 16:13, "No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money." And if you read some other translations, the word for use there or translated as money is mammon. And and I think that might be a little better translation of, of, of what's intended there because mammon uh, actually is more comprehensive. It includes all kinds of possessions, earnings and gains. You cannot love God and mammon. How many of you remember the little pamphlet, The Four Spiritual Laws? Do you remember those? Okay, in that pamphlet, there was a circle with a throne in the middle. And whatever was on the throne represented that thing which we desired most, sought after, and had priority in our lives. And so, when we covet something, when we seek after it, when we should be doing other things like sleeping or spending time with family or praying or studying scripture or attending worship, that thing is on the throne of our lives. That's what drives us. It's our greatest desire. It's what we think about all the time. It's what we covet. And, and look, look what covetousness is linked with in that passage I read from Ephesians chapter 5. It's linked with immorality, impurity, and idolatry. Serious stuff. Folks, this is no inconsequential thing, no small sin, although I don't think they're really small sins, but we tend to look, we grade sin, don't we? Well, it's not a small one if you grade sin. It's in fact the the root of many other sins. And further... Further evidence of the destructiveness of covetousness, say that fast three times, destructiveness of covetousness. Further evidence of the destructiveness of covetousness is seen in the parable that Jesus told of the sower and the seed. Talks about the seed sown among thorns that grow up and choke it out. The thorns represent the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Covetousness. And the result is that the word is choked out and unfruitful. And what could be more destructive than the failure of the words of life to do their work in our lives, to bear fruit, because they've been choked out by our desire for other things. So, how do we combat the deceitful and destructive effect that covetousness can have in our lives? How do we avoid it? Well, we practice satisfaction. And it's not easy to be satisfied, so we have to practice it. Um, John Muir, 
Many of you know that name. was a great naturalist in the early part of the last century. He was largely responsible for the creation of Yellowstone National Park and the formation of conservation policy in our country. Muir lived a very simple life, and yet he once said that he was wealthier than railroad magnate E.H. Harriman, who had acquired millions of dollars. When asked how he could say that he was richer than this man, he said, because I have all the money I want and he doesn't. You see, Muir had practiced satisfaction. So let me share some ideas that will help you practice satisfaction and in turn keep the Tenth Commandment. And by the way, these can be especially important at this time of the year. For those of you who want an F3 like I do. Although I don't expect to find one under the tree, I'll tell you that. Practicing satisfaction. Number one, cultivate gratitude. We talked about this last week. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With thanksgiving is a reminder to think about what God has already done, what He has already given us, what He has already, how we've seen Him at work in our lives in the past. So the focus is not entirely on what we want or need. It's about refocusing. You know, we can look at those who are better off and have more than us and complain. Or we can look at those who are worse off and have less than us and be thankful. We can even look at those who are better off and have more than us and still be thankful. By the way, you don't have to look far to see either. Those who have more, those who have less. And the reason we can look at those who have more and be thankful is because we see it so often... People in our culture who seem to have it all, whose lives are a wreck. We read about it in the papers all the time. Or not in the papers. Well, some of you read it in the paper. The rest of you read it online. But think of the personalities, the athletes, even the politicians, the Wealthy folks who are out there doing crazy, stupid, wrong stuff. We can look at people who seem to be better off and have more and be thankful. By the way, that just emphasizes the point that That stuff does not satisfy, and I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. By the way, being able to be thankful, to pray with thanksgiving, is a reminder to us of how important it is to take note of those places in our lives where God has blessed us, where God has intervened, where we've seen God act. 
You know, the ancient Israelites used to pile up stones when God did something powerful. And that way, someday when dad or mom are walking by with their child and the child asks, what's that about? They can say, oh, here's what God did here. We need stones of remembrance in our lives. It may be just a mental thing. Maybe you write them down. Some Julie's mom kept journals. Journals, journal every day of her life. Stones of remembrance so that we can go back and say, when we pray, we can pray with thanksgiving because we realize we've got these stones of remembrance all the way along in our lives. And we can say, look at what God did. The next thing we need to do to practice satisfaction is to live every day with eternity in view. This helps us keep our priorities properly aligned. If we all lived every day as if it were our last, how would that change our perspective? I mean truly change our perspective. Do you remember 88 Reasons Why Jesus is going to come in 88? Do you remember that, that book? And then the guy missed it, and so the next year there's 89 reasons why. And then he quit trying. But I remember reading that book and saying, wow, that makes sense. And, and, you know, it was supposed to happen on Rosh Hashanah of 88. And I don't know, I might have read this book in July, and Rosh Hashanah is in September. And suddenly, I'm thinking, this makes sense. This might happen. I had this incredible burden for people. A lot of other stuff that had been important up to that point didn't seem so important anymore. If the end was here. See what I'm saying? We need to live every day with eternity in view. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, the Apostle Paul had it figured out. But it was something he had to learn too. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he said, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Well, that's a huge thing, to be able to learn to be content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I mean, we generally, as blessed Americans, live in a state of being well-fed and having plenty, and yet we're still not satisfied. We're still not content. But Paul could say this because he knew God was his strength and provider, and he had a view for the eternal. So he said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he talks about our light and momentary troubles that are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He had an eternal perspective. This thing that I'm dealing with right now or what I have or don't have really isn't that important because this is a light and momentary thing. I have an eternity awaiting me. Oh, God, that we would have that perspective. Another thing that helps us To be satisfied is to remember who owns it all. Uh, Adrian Rogers, from his book, Ten Secrets of a Successful Family, writes this. Pastor friend of mine was talking to a U.S. congressman who told him, Pastor, I want to tell you 
what God taught me about giving. I took my son to McDonald's. He wanted some french fries, so I bought him a large order and we sat down for some father and son fellowship. As we sat at the table, I got to smelling those fries. I thought I would have a couple, so I reached over and started to take some. But my son put his hand on mine and said, Hey, those are mine. That just went right through me. I thought, my son has a bad attitude. But in a moment, in less time than it takes to tell it, God spoke to my heart and gave me the greatest lesson about stewardship I have ever learned. Here's what the congressman learned. He said, I thought about, I thought three things about my son. Number one, he'd evidently forgotten where those fries came from. I'm the one who bought them. Number two, he doesn't understand that I have the power to take them all away from him. Or if I wanted to, I could go buy 20 more large orders and bury him in French fries. Number three, my son, did, my son didn't realize that I want, if I wanted more fries for myself, I've got the money to go up and buy them and sit at another table and eat them all by myself. My son has an attitude problem. But then God spoke to me and said, that's exactly your attitude, the attitude you have sometimes. You need to remember where your blessings come from. I'm the one who gave you those things. And you need to understand that I have the power to take them away from you or give you more. And you need to understand that I don't need what you have. I can have my own. Important lessons. All that stuff that everybody else has and you want, God owns it. All of it. He gives it to us and He can take it away. And sometimes He does for our own good. We just need to remember that it's not ours and thank, for, thank God for what He has blessed us with. Amen. And then this, to be truly satisfied, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. See, none of the things I've already suggested will satisfy you if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. There is no way to know real contentment and freedom from covetousness without him. We were made for relationship with God. And as long as we're not in relationship with Him, we have an itch that can't be scratched and a hunger that can't be filled. You can throw anything you want at that need, but without Jesus, Jesus you will never be satisfied. You will never know peace and contentment. Max Lucado gives us a little illustration. He says, take a fish and put him on the beach. Watch his gills gasp and his scales dry. Is he happy? No. How do you make him happy? Do you cover him with a mountain of cash? Do you get him a beach chair and sunglasses? Do you bring him a playfish magazine and a martini? Do you wardrobe him in double-breasted fins and people-skin shoes? Of course not. How do you make him happy? You put him back in his element. You put him back in the water. 
We will never be happy on the beach. He will never be happy on the beach simply because he is not made for the beach. And we will never be happy with money or the stuff it can buy or fame or power or great talent because we were not designed to be satisfied with those things. We have to be in the element we were created for. And that element is a relationship with God through His Son, Christ Jesus. Only Jesus satisfies. And as we enter this season of Advent, we can thank God that He sent Jesus as a gift to us so that we could experience contentment, satisfaction, and peace through Him. Remember this song? The world may try to satisfy that longing in your soul. You may search the wide world over, but you'll be just as before. You'll never find true satisfaction until you've found the Lord, for only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only He can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet joy and love and heaven too, for only Jesus can satisfy your soul. If you could have fame and fortune, all the wealth you could attain, yet you have not Christ within, your living here would be in vain. You'll, there'll come a time when death will find you. Riches cannot help you then. So come to Jesus. Only He can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only He can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet joy and love and heaven too. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only Jesus can satisfy your soul. You know, the Christmas season can create great dissatisfaction if our focus is in the wrong place. And yet if we celebrate Christmas for the gift of God's Son, His only Son, we can experience the peace, contentment, and satisfaction that can only come through Jesus Christ. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we live in a world and we have to deal with an enemy who will use every possible trick and means to draw us away from you. He'll try to tell us that if we only had more money or we lived in a different house or a nicer car or if only we more, more, were more talented or, or and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And we live in a world that's bought into this thinking And so if you pursue those things and you get those things, somehow they'll bring you satisfaction and you'll be happy and you'll be content. And and yet we know, Lord God, that enough is never enough. 
Because none of those things will satisfy us. None of those things will be the contentment, the peace that we long to have in our lives. Only Jesus can satisfy. And we need you to help us keep our spiritual antennas way up in this season of the year. Because we're very much encouraged by the culture we live in, the consumerism that's so prevalent to make Christmas all about the wrong thing. Basically about covetousness, greed, a want and a desire for more and more. When this season should be a season when Jesus is lifted up and he's the one we seek with all of our hearts. And Father, a lot of folks have bought into this idea that it's stuff that you need. It's more that you need. We understand this morning that only Jesus satisfies. We can throw anything we want at that hole in our lives, at that longing. But until we find Jesus, we'll keep longing, we'll keep wanting, we'll keep desiring, we'll keep needing. So I'm extending an invitation this morning. See, the Christ that came at Christmas is the Christ who satisfies. You know, we put things under the tree gifts because Jesus was God's great gift to us. Well, we've let that get out of balance. We've let that get out of focus. And it's become about the gifts under the tree instead of God's incredible, amazing, indescribable gift to us. Jesus, you are the great satisfier. And so, the invitation this morning is, if you wrestle with covetousness, this desire, this longing for things. It's become the focus of your life. It's, it's what you work toward all the time. And yet, you're not satisfied. You're not content. You don't know peace. I would offer you Jesus. And you can come to Him where you are in your seat. You can come to him at the altar. He will meet you here as well. But I would invite you to invite Jesus into your life today. I can tell you this. When Jesus is Lord of your life, it will change your perspective on all those things. It will change your perspective on Christmas and what it's about. It will change your perspective on what truly satisfies I would encourage you to pray a simple prayer. Just invite Jesus to come in this morning. Tell him to be, that you want him to be the satisfier of your life. Tell him you want him to forgive your sin. Tell him you want him to be the focus of your life. The greatest and most important thing that you desire. And when Jesus has that place on the throne of your life, 
you can know satisfaction and contentment and peace that you've never known before. Praise his name. And then say, thank you, Jesus, because you're faithful and you will do what I've asked. And I believe it. And Father, we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.